Social Behavior of Horace Rumpel by John Mortimer Part 2 Going for Silk There's one thing about the life of Rumpel. It's certainly never dull for long. I had survived a trial for antisocial behavior in chambers. Now I had to try to keep young Peter Timpson out of the nick for similar antisocial misbehaviour. I had to deal with this, while at one and the same time trying to do my best for young Graham Weatherby, a civil servant accused of having killed Ludmilla Ravenskaya, a prostitute. And, also, I was busily engaged in defending Scotty Thompson, a lorry driver, charged with aiding and abetting the entry of illegal immigrants. Added to all the above, Hilda had recently shown a new, unwanted, and surprisingly well-informed, interest in the law. And this just when I'd decided to fight my way up to QC status and a silk gown. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. <sighs> Dear Diary, Leonard has been helping me in the plans I have for learning the law. He has lent me a number of little books that he said he used for passing his exams. His little crammers, he calls them. There's one called All You Need to Know About Contracts, and another which I find far more readable called Murder and Offences Against the Person in a Nutshell. Leonard Bullingham tells me I'll soon get to know as much law as Rumpole. In fact, he doesn't think that Rumpole knows much law at all, and that the only thing he has going for him is his gift of the gab. It must have been my final speech that did it in that farcical Asbo trial. Mm. Mm. I told that magistrate that he had the chance to become the Hampton of the City Magistrates' Court, and that though he might be criticised by the bureaucrats of Westminster, he'd be acclaimed by all who cherish our ancient freedoms, our constitution and the proper rule of law. It wasn't that final speech that did it at all, Rumpo. It was all down to Leonard. Leonard? Bullingham? Of course. He knows I want you to get your silk so I can pick up some of your future briefs when I'm called to the bar. Huh? So he was going to ask your head of chambers not to go on with the case. Did he? I phoned to tell him that the case was on, and he got hold of Sam Ballard in the lunchtime break. Apparently, he told your head of chambers that he wouldn't be considered for a judgeship if he dragged his chambers' name through the courts. So be Sam Ballard's being considered for a judgeship. That is what I just said, Rumpel. And your friend Leonard the Mad Bull Bullingham decided to help me. He did it for me, Rumpel. I'm sure he did. He and I both believe that it's simply essential that you get to write QC after your name. You've been at the bar long enough. I sometimes think my face doesn't fit. Lots of people with worse faces than yours have been able to put QC after their name. Mm. Judges tend not to like me. You have to get judges on your side to get made a queer customer. They don't like the way I point out their mistakes. They don't appreciate it when I get juries to notice their devious methods of trying to secure a conviction. They can tell that when I say, in my humble submission to your lordship, I can't bring myself to feel humble at all. Oh, perhaps you should stop doing those things, Rumpel. It's so embarrassing to have to admit to my bridge club that you're still a junior barrister. At your age, too. I can't stop being myself. That's too much to ask. All the same, it would be nice to have a silk gown and a seat in the front row. Horace Rumpel, QC, has an agreeable ring to it. And now, at least, you have Leonard on your side. Hmm. 
So fortune brings its mysterious changes. I was to enter my future years at the bar by courtesy of the mad bull, to whom it seemed I must be particularly grateful. Things seemed to be moving forward apace to Rumpole's acquisition of a silk gown. The committee deciding such matters contained a couple of QCs, queer customers is what I thought of both of them, and in the chair was Dame Mildred Wrightsworth, who carried on a cracking trade in the worlds of adultery and failure to consummate. It seemed that a very regular client of mine, Dennis Timson, had already given evidence of my success as a defender, and I was hoping for a short and snappy result in my favour. We've all seen your CV, Mr. Rumpole. Your practice is entirely criminal. Entirely, as I wish it to be. Uh, why do you say that? Because if you go down to the Old Bailey regularly, you'll find that all life is there. The real world with all its sins, mistakes, and occasional beauty and good behaviour. Go and watch the huge international companies suing each other in the Queen's Bench Division, and you move into a world of fantasy and make-believe. Hmm. Uh, we have learned that you can be discourteous to judges. Only when they act as leading counsel for the prosecution. Only when they indulge in such tricks as responding to the defence evidence with a sigh of disbelief. Only when they jump down from the bench and fight in the arena for a conviction. Then I feel they deserve a touch of discourtesy. Otherwise, some of my very best friends are judges. Indeed, that's right. Uh, Judge Leonard Bullingham has written us a letter in support of your application. Well, there you are. Apparent enemies in court, but close friends out of it. Hmm. I see. I cringed internally at the hypocrisy of this remark, but then decided that it was hypocrisy in a good cause. Speaking as one who has indulged in what you call the fantasy of company law from time to time... I'd like to ask you some questions about your attitude to crime. This came from Stephen Barnes, QC, whose long neck and disdainful expression made him look, I often thought, like a particularly unfriendly camel. I believe you mostly defend. Always. I don't like the idea of cross-examining people into choking. Very well. Then I'd like to tell you what one of your own supporters said about you. We don't usually let applicants know what their supporters have said about them, but in this case the chair has said I may do so. Is that right, chair? Oh, quite right, Mr Barnes. Yeah. The supporter in question was a Mr Dennis Timson. You know him well? Over the years, extremely well. And might he be described as an habitual criminal? Just as I might be described as an habitual defender. He said you were an excellent brief. That was kind of him. And it didn't matter if he was innocent or guilty. You'd do a good job either way. Is that true? Of course. So you defend people you know to be guilty? I don't know they are guilty. It's not my business to decide that. That's for the judge and jury. But if Mr Timson or anyone else tells me a story that's consistent with his innocence, it's my duty to defend him. Even if you don't believe it? I suspend my disbelief. My disbelief has been left hanging up in the robing room for years. 
My job is to put my client's case as well as it can be put. The prosecutor does the same, and then the jury chooses to believe one of us. It's called our judicial system. It seems to work more fairly than any other form of criminal trial, if you want my opinion. So it means that you have appeared for some pretty terrible people. The more terrible they are, the more they need defending. So morality doesn't enter into it? Yes, it does. The morality of making our great system of justice work, of protecting the presumption of innocence. So you never judge your clients? Of course not. I told you, judging isn't my job. Thank you, Mr. Rumpole. We've heard enough. Uh, Judge Bullingham's letter has been a great help to us, but, um, of course, you realise that these matters are finally decided by the Minister of Constitutional Affairs. So I left with the high feeling of success you get when a jury says not guilty. And my hopes rose even higher when I received an invitation to his club from an old adversary, one Peter Plasto, QC, who, after our struggles in a former case, had in fact just been made Minister of Constitutional Affairs. So there we were, under the soft lights of the Sheridan Club, where drinks were asked for quietly and members and their friends murmured together, so the occasional loud welcome or braying laugh seemed as out of place as it would in a chapel of rest. I see Leonard Bullingham is backing your application for silk. I thought you two were sworn enemies. How did you manage that? I think my wife managed it. Well done, Hilda. Of course, the final decision will rest with me as Minister for Constitutional Affairs. By the way, interesting case you're doing now. Oh, yes. Yet another poor girl in a consignment of desperate creatures slipped past the Dover authorities, and someone... Well, of course, we don't know how many Mm. cases there are, but another sensational one might be a tad too embarrassing. Uh, All right, but someone decided to set her free to apply for permanent residence. That's just what we don't want to have examined in court, Grumble, because, of course, all that was long before the murder. How or why she got into the country can't be any part of your defence. I'm sure you appreciate that coming out in court would be a very bad idea indeed for the government. By the way, I hope your application for silk goes really well, Rumpel. I'll have to leave you now. Dinner at the Swedish Embassy. It'll hardly be a laugh a minute. (laughs) Then he left me to think back on our conversation, which I hadn't found particularly amusing either. Just why was Peter Plasto so evasive on the subject of the illegally imported girls. A few weeks later, I was in the old Bailey canteen, along with my faithful friend and constant retainer, Bonnie Bernard, waiting for the jury to come back after a particularly boring breaking and entering. When he gave me news that was to open a door to some far more serious goings-on. What have you got there for me, Bonnie? Young Peter Timpson, he's broken his ass, What's she done this time? Kicked a football into the street next to his. Street where all the posh people live. Dad wants you to appear for him again. Do you really want to do it? What did Wordsworth, my darling old sheep of the Lake District, say? Hmm? We come into the world trailing clouds of glory, and then... Um, and then uh, uh, terrible things begin to happen? Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. Now that playing football in the street has become as serious as murder... It's up to us to defend Master Timpson with all the skill at our command. Right here. 
Back in my chambers, I was still contemplating the fate of young Peter Timson when... Come in. In came Fig ah, Newton at last. And he didn't look any more cheerful, despite the fact that his story was one of unexpected success. Extensive inquiries around a number of lock-up garages in the Canaria Wharf area were producing nothing, Mr. Rumpole. Mm. But as luck would have it, and I owe my success in this business entirely to such points of luck, I heard a story about a driving garage under an office block where they thought there was orgies going on. Ah. Sounds of girls crying out, there was. But no one had admittance to the place. So I started watching the location, regular by car. Mm -hmm. On the fourth night, I struck lucky. A lorry arrived just after midnight, um, well, 12.18, according to my notes. There were men in the garage who helped bring in big packing cases from the lorry. I kept observation on the lock-up until approximately four or five when a people carrier arrived. Three girls emerged from the garage and were helped into the vehicle. I followed them to a house in Battersea where they took in one of the girls. Then the people carrier drove on to an address in Clapham. An escort rang on the bell of the house in question where the door was opened by a middle-aged woman who took the other two girls inside. People carrier drove off but I got stuck behind some lights and she got away. Did you manage to find out who owned the lock-up garage? Do you think I'd go to sleep on the job, Mr Rumpel? The firm's name is Helsing. Oh. Saw it on the van. Estate agents, it said. Tried to ring them, but they weren't answering the phone. And the address in Clapham, where the girls were finally deposited. Ah, I wrote that down on a piece of paper specially for you, Mr Rumpel. Here it is. Mm. You, you're sure this is the address? Have I ever let you down? <laughs> Anything the matter, Mr. Rumpel? No, 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 it's, it's you, Fig. You've produced the finest, the most satisfying piece of synchronicity that I've ever had to deal with. Oh, well, thank you, Mr. Rumpel. And then I was back to where this story began, in the South London Magistrates' Court with young Peter Timpson, who stood, as I had done, within the shades of the prison house for breaking the terms of an ASBO. In the matter of Timpson, application to enforce antisocial behaviour order. The current set of magistrates were with us, looking as ever severe and disapproving. On the other side of the court, Parks was sitting with a tall woman, perhaps in her fifties, with bright hair piled high on her head, a long neck disappearing into a fur-collared leather jacket, and an extremely discontented expression. This would turn out to be Mrs. Englefield, the neighbour who was young Peter's chief accuser. And I had an application to make. I ask that my client should be referred to as Peter, as he is a 14-year-old child in danger of being sent to prison. <laughs> to a young offenders institute. Call it what you like. It's a prison where he can be taught to commit crimes and come out a threat to society. Does your client admit that he broke the order? Nothing is going to be admitted until we hear the evidence against him. We've already read Mrs Englefield's statement. Yet that's the point. It was a statement by a witness who didn't offer herself for cross-examination. That's not evidence at all. I hope this Mrs Englefield is in court. Uh, she is because you took out a witness summons. Exactly so. I did that so I can cross-examine her after she's taken the oath. And then we might come to the truth. The truth about your client's footballing? 
and a few related matters. What is your authority, Mr. Rumpel, for saying that a statement has to be proved by a witness on oath and available for cross-examination? Good point, was what I thought, but did not say. And then the name of the very important and influential Mr. Peter Plasto came suddenly into my head. And so I told them what he might be thinking. No written authority at present, although I gather that directions on this matter are to be given shortly by the new Minister for Constitutional Affairs, Peter Plasto. He finds it intolerable that the young boy should be deprived of his liberty on charges that have never been tested by cross-examination. I see. Hmm. Uh, Mr. Parks, I don't suppose you'd object to putting Mrs. Englefield in the witness box so that Mr. Rumpel might ask her a few questions? Seems a fairly simple issue, but uh, we have to take into account the view of the Minister for Constitutional Affairs. Very well, Madam Chair, as you see fit. And without further ado... It was agreed that Mrs. Englefield be called and that she give her statement to Mr. Parks. I saw this boy kick his football into my street at least nine times since the last hearing. Thank you, Mrs. Englefield. Do you have any questions after that, Mr. Rumpel? Just a few. Perhaps you could tell us exactly why you didn't want this young footballer hanging around your street. It disturbed me. Well, not much of a disturbance, was it? A lad entering your road for a few minutes to retrieve a football. People buy houses in the Grove for peace and quiet. And, of course, I need it for my work. I have a good many patients who come to me for specialised treatment. And what sort of treatment do you give them? I give spiritual healing. We sit quietly together and explore our own spaces. And I suppose you need peace and quiet for that? Absolutely. I chose Beechwood Grove because it was so quiet. Mrs Englefield... No doubt you've heard of the importation of girls who get smuggled into this country and set to work as prostitutes. Have you heard of that? Uh, what has this to do with the case? Have you heard of these illegal importations? I may have read something about it. I have to suggest you know a great deal more about it than that. Uh, I don't know what Mr Rumpole is suggesting. Then sit quietly and you'll find out. Now, let me take you back to the 10th of May. The night before, a number of girls had been smuggled into England and left in a warehouse somewhere near Canary Wharf. They were to be distributed to various addresses to work as prostitutes. Madam Chair... Mr Rumpel, is this relevant? Absolutely essential to my case. That morning, a witness, whom I shall call, saw the girls move from a warehouse and distributed to certain addresses. At 4.45am... A people carrier drove up to your house in Beechwood Grove. Two girls were delivered to you. My witness will identify you as the lady who opened the door to them and led them into your house. Now, are you going to tell me that they came to you for spiritual healing? Under cover of darkness? At four in the morning? I have to suggest to you that the sole reason why you didn't want boys kicking footballs near your house is that they might see too much. They might learn too much about you. They might tell stories of mysterious foreign girls who had been shipped over the channel in the backs of lorries and delivered in the early hours of the morning to the Beechwood Grove brothel or home for spiritual healing. It was at this point that Parks asked for an adjournment in order that he might take further instructions. It was nearly lunchtime, so Bonnie Bernard, 
Bertie and his son, young Peter Timson, and I repaired to the nearest public house, where cold pie and Guinness were on offer. There we were joined by our not-too-learned young prosecutor... Ah, Mr. Rumpel. ...who brought welcome news. I must tell you, Mrs. Englefield denies any and all of the suggestions made to her about girls arriving at her house. Mm-hmm. However, on further consideration, she does not wish to send such a young boy into custody, so she intends to discontinue proceedings on the Asbo. And never to reinstate them? <clears throat> I think you've made your point, Mr. Rumpole. She really has no choice. (laughs) Shake hands with your brief, Peter. He's done you proud. Oh, thanks, Mr. Rumpole. Would you like the rest of my pie? Uh, no, I... Thank you, Peter. It may not have been the trial of the century, but thanks to Fig Newton, it was sorted out admirably. Dear Diary... Leonard Bullingham has taken a shine to Dame Phyllida Erskine Brown. I could tell by the way he gawped at her at the last Chamber's drinks party, and he keeps telling me what a handsome woman she is. Well, she hasn't worn so badly, but I told him, of course, she's knocking on a bit now. All I could say about her appearance nowadays was mutton dressed as lamb. I did get a bit jealous, though, when he told me at the bridge club how very much Phyllida had enjoyed lunch at the Sheridan. I couldn't help remembering how I'd once taken me for lunch there. And then there was the question of the flicks. I was particularly anxious to see the new Pirates of the Caribbean film, as I'm very taken with Johnny Depp. It would be hopeless to ask Rumpole to accompany me, but I remembered that Leonard had taken me to see a film in the days when he was, so to speak, courting me. When I told him my idea about the flicks, he actually said quite calmly, I've fixed up to see that with Phyllida. Oh, really? That was just about the giddy limit. The warmth of early June had gone, to be followed by an uncertain summer with bright days, then high winds and pouring rain. The list of new judges came out, and in spite of his intervention in the Rumpole-Asbo case and Leonard Bullingham's promise of support for him, Ballard's name was not among those picked. But I was dismayed to discover that on the list was the gloomy QC Stephen Barnes, the man with the looks of a discontented camel. It was, therefore, with some sinking of the heart that I learned that the new judge was to be started off on the case that I had inherited from Soapy Sam Ballard, and was listed to appear at the Old Bailey. The tricky matter of the Queen against Graham Weatherby, on the serious charge of murder. Prosecutor Humphrey Noakes opened proceedings. There can be few cases tried in this court, members of the jury, in which the facts point so clearly and inescapably to the guilt of the accused. We have no doubt at all that when you have heard the full story, whatever ingenious arguments my learned friend Mr Rumpole may put forward, this case can have only one conclusion. The conviction of Graham Weatherby on a charge of willful murder. Anna McKinnon, the concierge at the flat where Ludmilla had worked, was the first and the most dangerous witness for the prosecution. She told us about Weatherby coming to the flat and her finding him with Ludmilla's dead body and locking him in an adjoining room. The prosecutor then proceeded to put his finger with unerring accuracy 
upon what was a distinct flaw in my case. Miss McKinnon, you say you spoke to the deceased only a few moments before you let Mr. Weatherby into the flat. Is that correct? Just before, yes. So that this third person, whom Mr. Rumpole would have us believe actually committed the murder, would need to have been already hidden in the bedroom, where he strangled Miss Ravinskaya very quietly, and then escaped through the bedroom's other door, while Mr. Weatherby was waiting next door in the sitting room. That would have been impossible. Uh, why, sir? No one could have got out the flat without <clears throat> my seeing him. That bedroom door only leads back into the hallway, and the front door there is the only way out the flat, and I was in the hallway. No, sir. There's no such other person. Uh, thank you, Miss McKinnon. It was then up to me to cross-examine her, and I started out in a friendly fashion. Miss McKinnon, you have told the court that, in your opinion, no one but my client could have strangled Ludmilla. I know he did it. And having strangled her... He called you in to see what he had done. He called out to me, yeah. When what he could have done was to walk out of the flat and get cleared away before you discovered the body. Isn't that what you would have done if you'd committed a murder? Mr. Rumpole, this witness can't be asked what she would do if she had committed a murder. Her evidence is confined to what she saw. Mr. Justice Barnes interrupted for the first, but certainly not the last time. And what she saw was apparently a murderer who called attention to his crime and stayed to get arrested. That is a comment you may make at the appropriate time. At the moment, would you confine yourself to dealing with this lady's evidence? Very well, my lord. Had you ever seen my client, Graham Weatherby, before that fatal afternoon? Never. But I saw enough of him that day. So you had no reason to think he'd had any sort of quarrel with Lord Miller? No. Thank you for telling us that. So, within five minutes of meeting a total stranger, he decided to strangle her. Sadly, our legal history is full, members of the jury, of murderers who have killed prostitutes without any apparent reason. It might be done from some perverted idea of ridding the world of such women. You may choose to disregard his lordship's reference to Jack the Ripper... I'm afraid we have here a case of premature adjudication. <laughs> it was a telling phrase that I'd used a few times before, and I was pleased to see that it raised smiles from at least three members of the jury. I turned my attention back to the witness. Let me ask you about Ludmilla. Did you know that she was imported from Russia in a crate on the back of a lorry? Uh. I think she tried to tell me something like that. Hmm? Do you remember a journalist called Lars Bergman being in touch with you both? I remember a journalist visiting. Very full of himself, he was. I wasn't told his name. Never ever. But you remember a journalist coming to your address. He told me he wanted Ludmilla to tell him the story of how she got to England and her relationship with the group that brought her here. Did he ask you anything about that? He might have asked something like that when he came in. It's just not my job to talk to clients. Did Ludmilla agree to cooperate with him? As she said, she had. Said he'd offered her a lot of money for a story. Yeah, I'm sure he did. <clears throat> but the organisation didn't want the story told, did they? Mr Rumpel, I wonder what exactly this organisation is. Then wander on, my lord, till truth make all things plain. 
The organization that brought Ludmilla here didn't want their story told, did they? And very soon afterwards, her throat was wrung, so she could tell no more tales. Mr. Rumpel, who are you suggesting did this terrible deed? Someone, my lord, who had far better motive for killing her than my unfortunate client. Someone who was afraid she'd tell the whole story. Someone killed her and made sure that her death would be blamed upon the next available client. You knew that, Miss McKinnon, didn't you? Uh, oh, my... It is my duty to remind you that you're not bound to answer any question which might incriminate you. Do you wish to answer Mr. Rumpole's question? Certainly not. There, Mr. Rumpole. You've done your best. My best or my worst? I'll let the jury decide. I have no more questions. So I sat down, not altogether displeased with my cross-examination, but we still had a long way to go. At lunchtime, I went down to the cells to see my disappointed client. That woman was lying. Not at all. I made her tell the truth. It was very helpful. There must have been someone else in that room, whatever she says. And that judge, he's got no respect for you. The feeling is entirely mutual. Maybe he'll respect you a bit more when the QC comes through. <sighs> I don't expect so. You know what it's like among those who serve Her Majesty's government? Those who are newly appointed to positions of power always look down on those in the lower ranks. Oh, you're telling me the story of my life. Hmm. By the way, you work in civil service human resources, don't you? Yes, I do. Did you ever use estate agents in the acquiring of property? Sometimes. Well, does the name Helsing mean anything to you? Helsing? I... Do remember the name. It was a small firm that we used for hiring accommodation when I was at the Home Office. Yes, Helsing, that was the name. Thank you for that. I was genuinely grateful while trying not to sound over-optimistic. However, I had yet to cross-examine the police doctor. Doctor, you first saw the body of Ludmilla Ravenskaya when you arrived at about 2.30. <coughs> What did you find? The death had been due to manual strangulation. Yes, I think we're all agreed about that. What else did you notice? I'm not quite sure what you are referring to. Well, for instance, were there any signs of rigor mortis? I did notice some stiffening of the joints, yes. Some stiffening. Can you tell us if the stiffening was quite far advanced? I thought it was, but I'd been told the time of death was only an hour before, so... I felt I'd been mistaken. And what if you weren't mistaken? I'm not quite sure what you mean. Neither am I, Mr. Rampole. You could put it more clearly to the doctor. I mean, that would have meant death occurred two or three hours before your examination of the body. Put like that, I suppose it's possible. Did you notice anything about the girl's eyes? Did I notice what about the eyes? Did you notice, for example, black spots in her eyes? Someone had shut her eyes. I opened them. And were there black spots? Something like that, yes. And that would indicate death some three hours previously. That is usually so, yes. All you saw of that girl's body would indicate a death much earlier than one hour before your examination. In the usual course of events, yes. In the usual course of events. 
I wasn't asked to consider the time of death. Well, you've been asked to consider it here, and you've been extremely helpful. Thank you, Doctor. And I also gave silent thanks to Bonnie Bernard and our old friend Professor Ackerman, the master of the morgues, for his excellent advice. The next day brought us Detective Inspector Belfridge, a large avuncular figure. My job was to get him to be as helpful as possible without launching an all-out attack. A cosy chat between old friends was what I was aiming for. So, Inspector, you have a long experience of cases of this sort, have you not? <laughs> I certainly have. And you've knocked around the criminal courts for a fairly long stretch as well. That's true. <laughs> Mr. Rumpel, this is a very serious case, so please make sure it proceeds in a serious manner. Of course, my lord, nothing could be more serious than the wrongful conviction of an innocent man. Inspector, I imagine you've traced the course of Ludmilla's life from the time of her arrival in England to her death in Flight Street. <clears throat> you know that she was imported from Russia in a crate on the back of a lorry, like a consignment of caviar, and that when she was discovered at Dover, she was allowed to stay here, provided that she reported to the police. Do you think it might be said that Home Office officials were being particularly lenient in her case? Mr. Rumpole, how can the officer possibly answer that? Very well, my lord, but would you agree, Inspector, that there are in existence various criminal organisations dealing with the importation of foreign girls to be put to work as prostitutes? Well, that is happening, yes. So let us look at this case. A Home Office official allowed her in. She's then taken to a building in the Canary Wharf area of London where I shall prove that girls of her sort are <coughs> temporarily confined. The ownership of that building has been traced to Helsing, a firm of estate agents occasionally used by the Home Office. From here, she's put to work as a prostitute in Flight Street. Does not all of that suggest that a serious and efficient organisation is at work? It certainly would seem so. An organisation of people who know their business... I would say so, yes. Perhaps an organisation with connections to the Home Office itself. Mr. Rumpo, that is an outrageous suggestion. This is an outrageous crime, my lord. I shall warn the jury to disregard anything you've said about the Home Office. And I'm sure that members of the jury will consider your advice very carefully before they decide whether or not to act upon it. <laughs> Inspector, if Ludmilla was about to tell her story to a journalist... The organisation controlling her would have done everything in their power to stop this happening, wouldn't they? I expect they would. They might even not have stopped short of murder. I suppose that is a possibility, yes. Thank you, Inspector. You've been extremely helpful. The most dangerous part of any case is when you have to put your client into the witness box. Weatherby stood there apparently unperturbed as I asked the most important question. Do you find it difficult to get girls to sleep with you? With this on my face, what do you think? Graham Weatherby touched his spreading birthmark, and I hoped the jury understood. They sat stolidly and gave nothing away. Is that why you resorted to sex with girls like Ludmilla Ravenskaya? Yes, and I've usually found them very kind and understanding. Is that how you expected to find Ludmilla? Yes. But instead, I found her dead. And what did you feel when you found her dead? Terribly sorry for her, and angry with whoever did it. Noakes did his best to break through Weatherby's certainty, 
but he stuck to his simple story. And then I tried to enliven proceedings by calling Fig Newton, who gave evidence about the premises near Canary Wharf. But Judge Barnes stepped in. How is all this relevant to the present case, Mr. Rumpel? You're not suggesting that this witness saw Ludmilla at any point? No, my lord. An essential part of my case is that there was an efficient organization dealing in these unfortunate imported girls. This organization killed Lord Miller when they thought that she was about to tell her story to the press. Is your lordship suggesting that the jury should be denied this evidence? Mr. Rumpel, I'm looking at the clock. Court will rise now and come back into court at two o'clock, members of the jury. Would your lordship say half past two? That'll give me time to get up to Fleet Street and make an application to the Court of Appeal. I saw a look of apprehension, even fear, flit across the camel's features, as though he felt he was about to step into some nasty hole in the desert sand. I will give a considered judgment on this matter at two o'clock. Perhaps you will delay your application until you have heard what I have got to say. I retired to the old Bailey canteen with Bernard for a light lunch of sausage, egg and chips. What do you think, Mr. Rumpel? You got that judge on the run? I think we're on a winner. A newly appointed judge doesn't want to have his decisions pissed upon by the appeal court. <laughs> My forecast was right. The learned camel returned from his lunch with the other judges and with a sigh of resignation told me I could call my evidence. So, happily, the jury heard of girls imprisoned in the Canary Wharf building and then being driven round London and handed out like bottles of milk to customers. I even managed to get in the story of Mrs. Englefield, who had by now been questioned by the police. Two days later, I reached my final appeal to the jury. Possible, members of the jury. I want you to have that word in your mind throughout all your deliberations. You have heard of the organization that ruthlessly controlled the lives of these girls. Is it not possible that when they thought Ludmilla was going to reveal their secret, they decided to silence her forever? You've heard the doctor's evidence about the time of death. You can't convict Weatherby unless you find him guilty beyond reasonable doubt and that you believe him to have been with Ludmilla that morning, three hours before her body was discovered. Once you find that another explanation of these events is possible, then you are left in a state of doubt. Above all things, remember what the police inspector in charge of this case said. It's a possibility. Detective Inspector Belfridge told us that it was not Weatherby, but this secret and illegal organization that put an end to the unhappy young life of Ludmilla Ravenskaya. If you agree with this police officer, then you must be left in some doubt. It will then be your duty, and I trust it will be your pleasure, to acquit this young man of a horrible crime. Waiting for a jury to come back is always the worst time at the Old Bailey. There is nothing you can do other than consume too many cups of coffee and listen once again to Bonnie Bernard's riveting account of his daughter's success in the inter-school netball semi-final. Mr. Rumpel, may I join you? This account was, thankfully, interrupted by a visit from our clerk Henry, who'd come down specially to the Old Bailey. It's about your application for QC, Mr. Rumpel. They're about to wrap me in silk, are they? I'm afraid not, Mr. Rumpole. 
the Minister for Constitutional Affairs, well, he's turned down your application. Peter Plasto, QC. That's the one. They're saying around the temple that you shouldn't have asked those questions about the Home Office. Mm-hmm. The jury are returning to court number one. As they came in, the members of the jury were looking at Weatherby and the dock. If they'd failed to meet his eyes, it would have been a sure sign of a conviction. But in ten minutes, the case which I had lived with for so long was over, and Weatherby was a free man. You see, it didn't make any difference my not getting a silk gown. You're a free man. Thank you. And uh, I'm sorry Ah. about the QC. (laughs) Never mind. I can still win cases alone and without a leader, even if I am the oldest junior barrister around the temple. (laughs) Well, good luck. Thank you, Mr. Rumpole. What is the left to tell? The fortress ran a story about allegations of a group within the Home Office importing girls for prostitution. The Prime Minister told Parliament that this was an outrageous suggestion and that he had every faith in the integrity of all civil servants. Hmm. Scotty Thompson's friend, Fred Atkins, was at last apprehended by the police, and in his statement after caution, he admitted that he had not told Scotty that he had given him a human cargo to ferry across Europe and into Britain. The case against Scotty was dropped after this rare example of honour among thieves. And Hilda had an astonishing revelation for me about her judicial friend, Leonard Bullingham. At the Temple Garden Party, I distinctly saw him embrace Mrs. Justice Erskine Brown. Hmm? Not to put too fine a point on it, I saw his hand on her knee, and I saw it slide towards the opening of her fashionably short skirt. I beat a hasty retreat, and I didn't think that they had noticed me. But the vision of two judges kissing has had a lasting effect on me. During a discussion about young Peter Timson's Asbo case, I told her that I'd managed to get all the evidence heard by telling the magistrate that the new Minister for Constitutional Affairs, Peter Plasto, was ruling that witnesses in breach of Hasbro cases should be cross-examined. And was that true? Well, not exactly, but that's what he ought to have said. Your profession has no sense of morality, Rumpo. It was morally right that young Peter was acquitted. I've come to a decision, Rumpo. After the way that you and Leonard have behaved, I'm giving up my idea of reading for the bar. I'm going down to Cornwall instead, where Dodo Macintosh says we could have a great deal of fun sketching. Right. So, now I am back at my desk in chambers, consuming an illegal meat pie and quaffing an illegal glass of wine. The life of an old Bailey hack, I think to myself, has indeed more ups and downs in it than the roller coaster at the end of Brighton Pier. In part two of The Antisocial Behaviour of Horace Rumpel by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpel was played by Timothy West. His wife Hilda, she who must be obeyed, was Prunella Scales. Bonnie Bernard, Nicholas Leprevo. Anna McKinnon, Jilly Mears, and the police doctor was Roger May. Prosecutor Noakes was Matthew Morgan, Judge Barnes, Jeffrey Whitehead, Graham Weatherby, David Holt, and Detective Inspector Belfridge was David Shawpaka. 
Other parts were played by members of the company. The antisocial behavior of Horace Rumpole was directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.